Hi everyone, welcome to episode number 95. We've got strength coach legend Christian Thibodeau on here today and I don't even know if I can explain how fun and nuanced this conversation is. We went totally off script for a while so you're just going to have to check it out. We talk a lot about early sports specialization for kids, the problems with that stuff and a lot of concepts of how young athletes can be better, a lot of mistakes that are made with coaching them. We also talk about, in his career, uh, some of the major changes and trends that he's seen, in particular social media, and he's got a healthy dose of criticism for political correctness in our industry and where it's caused some problems. Stay tuned. Shut up and sit down. Everyone, welcome back to the podcast. So today we have a industry industry legend, strength coach, strength coach. I can't find words today, Andrew. Try He's again. a strength coach, strength and conditioning coach. Yeah. Christian Thibodeau joins us, someone who I've been following and reading for a really long time. Uh, now he's often seen as a bodybuilding coach because, well, he looks like a super jacked up uh, stunt double for Vin Diesel, which I know yeah. you've heard. Asked once to do a be a BS double. He uh, <laughs> was filling the Chronicle of Reddick in Montreal. Yeah, no. and, and I've done a few like TV spots before, so I'm, I'm in the book, right? So they, they actually called me up asking to be his buddy double for for uh, that that movie, but I was in Colorado at the time, so I had to decline that. Oh, that would have been like a dream come true. So I, if that were true, I would have gone back just to watch to see if I could notice. <laughs> and uh, so you've you've often been seen as this bodybuilding coach, uh, and, and as a flagship contributor to Teenage for a really long time. But your true love and the foundation of your work is. Is still strength and performance, so it's great to have you on. Welcome. Well, it's great to be here, and and uh, every time I can talk about performance, to me, it's like the icing on the cake, right? Because <laughs> they always want to talk about hypertrophy, which is cool, right? Uh, but as you mentioned, and I still work with athletes. I still I work like with four Olympians right now, and that's what I really like to do. I, I've worked with bodybuilders before. Uh, because that's why that's how I was branded by T Nation. Because let's face it, hypertrophy and fat loss is what sells the most on the internet. At least it did like five years ago. I think it's moving more and more toward performance uh, nowadays. But that, I was branded that way to like kind of replace Charles Poliquin, who was of course a former strength coach who also branched out to body composition first with Muscle Media and eventually with T Nation. Uh, so, and I, I don't mind talking hypertrophy. I, I love anything related to improving the body, either making it perform better or look better. But at the core, I'm really all about making the body perform better. Well, so it's, again, it's funny you say that because it's like your interest is there, but like we both know on T Nation, it's just like <laughs> like 18 to 35 year old dudes that just want to get jacked. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think that you know we still need to cater to these guys because the fact of the matter is that those kids will be us yeah. in 10 years, right? We were, so, that was us, that was me. <laughs> that, that was me also. I mean, so even though I was a football player, I trained mostly like a bodybuilder and that's the, 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 that's my biggest regret, right? Uh, when I was a football player, I trained like a bodybuilder and I run, I run like a 5, 340. <laughs> and when I stopped playing football, I, I moved on to Olympic weightlifting. And after three years of Olympic weightlifting, I was running a four-five uh, electric time. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, I was I was a much better athlete when I was not an actual athlete. Uh, but but anyway, so if we can actually like take those eighteen-year-old guys who just want to get jacked, and just by giving them what they want at first, but like slipping in some like <laughs> cool information. I, when I was a kid, right. Uh, I always had problems taking aspirins when I was a kid. So my mother always crushed the aspirins and, and blended it into honey. 
So I would just eat the honey and, and didn't taste, taste the aspirin, but it just went out down smoothly. So it's kind of the same thing, right? They want to talk hypertrophy, want to get jacked, but you can still in like instill some great information into them. Uh, so they, you get them interested, you give them what they want, but you also give them information that they will gradually work up to. And in 10 years from now, they're going to have a fun, you know, I was all about having big biceps back then. But, you know, that tip guy, I convinced me to train more like an athlete to get jacked. But I, I found that I really love training like an athlete more than I like getting jacked. Well, to tell Chris, your secret, your secret uh, method is to, like, make all these guys run four or fives by the time they're in their mid-20s. There you go. <laughs> like, Chris, Chris, Christian's fucking it up. He's, he's trying to bait and switch these guys with honey. Well, <laughs> I'm experiencing something sort of similar because... Um, I more recently, certainly much more recently than you, started writing for Teen Nation, and you know, I've got a handful of articles up there, and a lot of it is, again, more bodybuilding geared, and while I'll write that for this the website, a lot of the stuff I write for my own website is completely different, it has nothing to do with bodybuilding, and I don't work with, well, competitive bodybuilders I don't touch at all, I've had like one men's physique guy, and then I'm just like, okay, dude, you have to go with a coach who deals with this stuff, because this is not what I'm interested in, but... Everyday people, I got a lot of young athletes and young hockey players. Uh, that stuff's really, really fun. I enjoy that stuff a lot. But yeah, it's still pretty cool to get people jacked and put muscle on them as well. So, and I don't think these things are as unrelated as some people kind of pretend. No, absolutely. No. You do need hypertrophy to maximize athletic performance. It's the size of your engine, right? Yeah. Of course. I mean, the analogy I like to use is that of a factory. Uh, the bigger the factory, the more employees you have, the more productive you can be. So the bigger muscle, technically, you have a greater potential for strength and power. Of course, depending on the efficiency of efficiency of the nervous system, doesn't mean you're going to be able to use that muscle to produce force and speed. But the potential is still there. So the analogy I use is, let's say that you do have a big-ass factory right, with tons of employees. Well, if the employees don't show up for work, then you won't be productive. That is muscle fiber recruitment, right? So that's the first step. Second step, right? even if the employees show up, but they don't work hard, they still <laughs> aren't going to be productive. That is firing rate. So how fast those recruited fibers can fire, which is a real key to strength production, by the way. Uh, then the, th the third level is if the employees show up, they work hard, but they don't work well together with the people at their station, they still won't be productive. That is intramuscular coordination. Then even if they show up, they work hard, they work well together with the people in their station, but each station doesn't work well together with the other stations, it's not going to be productive. That is intermuscular coordination. So, so as you can see, the, the, the potential is there by making the muscles bigger. But eventually, if you want to be a better athlete, you still need to focus on the nervous system. But there is definitely a place to work on hypertrophy with athletes, uh, especially with younger athletes, to build that foundation on which, and that, and that's a different topic, right? Hmm. And I'm pretty sure you've seen that, like like people working with young hockey players, like with like eight, nine, twelve year old hockey player, and they're already doing like single leg box jumps, single leg plyometrics, Olympic lifting, stuff like that, like very advanced stuff. I mean, because it sells. Yeah. I mean, if you show the parents, this is what I'm doing with your kid, Sidney Crosby is doing the same fucking thing. It sells. It's going to get you money. But it's the dumbest thing to do because you're going to completely destroy that athlete's career. I mean, the athlete cannot even do a bodyweight squat properly. You have him do single leg box jobs, right? How messed up is that kid's motor pattern going to be in the future? It's better to build a foundation. And yes, that includes hypertrophy work to make the muscles big enough to have the engine and then building the proper movement patterns on a big basic lift. That's what you need to do with kids. But it doesn't sell because it doesn't look cool. 
Anyway, that's... Well, and hockey, but hockey's a weird one because, like, it, as a sport, it's just getting bigger in terms of even, like, TV contracts. But no one really put two and two together with strength and conditioning in terms of, like, the public opinion. Like, football, you know, you get jacked and big and strong and fast. Where hockey's always been like, well, these guys are just skinny. They need to be fast and speed and agility. When really, it's the it doesn't change that much. Like, in terms well, of the training. Like, it does, but it doesn't. But what my, my own personal belief is, as a strength coach, your goal is to turn that person into the best overall athlete possible. Just improve their basic physical capacity as much as possible, then learn to apply that to your sport. I'm not saying that there's no room for sport-specific training, but certainly not with kids. Sport-specific training is for people who are at the utmost level of physical capacity versus the need of their sport. Well, my my approach to my athletes is... Uh, we, we talk a lot, we hear a lot about over-specialization in young athletes, which is most people now, most experts are considered this, consider this to be a fairly big problem. Injury rates and just burning these yeah. kids out. So I treat their strength training like a different sport. Uh, different lines of stress on their bodies, obviously making them stronger, making them more robust, resilient to injuries. Uh, put a bit more structure on them so that way in physical physical sports, they're a bit more durable. And treat it like it's that different sport, so that way they're not getting those specializations. And often what I'll say to my athletes, like, I've got a young goalie who skates in the WHL. I'm not his goalie coach. I'm not going to teach him to be a better goalie. We talk Mm -hmm. mindset stuff and, like, some of that, which matters. But I just get this kid strong, right? And I've got a goalie who's out, he goes to camps and he's out sprinting all the forwards, which is really Mm -hmm. fun. And, uh, you know, and he's resilient. He goes and he goes and does motocross all the time and... Um, well, know, I, and he, did, he I wouldn't tell him to do motocross. No, I don't. I don't. I actually, I, I would love that he didn't. But you know, he's pretty resilient. He doesn't get hurt doing it. So I guess he's got to have that attitude. But but the whole topic of sports specialization is actually like a big pet peeve of mine. I'm actually writing at the moment. I'm actually writing a book, and it's called "Your Kid Sucks and It's Your Fault." <laughs> That's don't gonna sell. That title, it's my title. I don't title. want anybody to steal it because it's, it's just too good. And and I explain exactly how you take someone from like the, the, the moment they are born to how you make them a pro athlete and how most people screw up. Yeah. And I'm not going to talk about what they do like to screw up their kid when they're zero to two years old because that's where most of the okay, natural talent, what we call natural talent, is given by the parents, but it doesn't come from genetics. Yeah. It comes from the first two years of a, a, of a kid's life. What you do with the kids when he's zero to two is what lays the foundation for what we call natural talent, which is a combination of motor skill and eye coordination, it depends on the visual system, the vestibular system, and the proprioceptive system, and how they work together. And the second element is creativity. The two elements to what we call natural talent is motor skill and creativity. And creativity cannot be developed when you only focus on one sport. Because the, the what creativity is, is you have the biggest possible uh, base of experiment. In, in your brain, you have all these information from doing many, many, many different things. And when you need that information, you can create a new solution from an existing problem by using information from something else you did. Now, maybe I've never seen that situation before, but I've seen something fairly similar when I played soccer. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm going to apply that. The second element is the, 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 the not at being afraid of failing. Because it's one thing to create a solution in your mind, you must apply it. And third is the visceral need to accumulate new experiences. 
And that's what you need to encourage with kids, having as many different experiences as possible. That is the root of creativity. Then what we have in our in Canada, right? It, it's the opposite. You play hockey 12 yeah. months out of the year. <laughs> you have hockey camps. You have uh, power skating camps. Mm-hmm. And when you have a, an eight-year-old kid, you already have him play a specific system on the ice. Yeah. They are playing the trap. The, the, the third winger is coming back to help on defense. So you, you force a kid to apply a system. And when they don't apply the system, the coach gets on their back, yeah. right? And that's the best way to kill creativity. Now, Wayne Gretzky once told a story that he was he, when he was a, a peewee, he, he had a, a tournament and they lost in the finals. And he was, of course, devastated. And, and his father told him, you know what? Not a single one of these kids will turn pro. And, of course, Wayne Gretzky was devastated because, you know what, if they don't become pro and they beat us, it means none of us will become pro. But his father told him it's because, right, they're 12 years old. They're already playing the trap. They're already backing down the third winger. So they, they, they beat you not because they were better, but because they, were, they had a system. But because of that, those kids never develop yeah. creativity. You guys were just a bunch of kids playing on a heist that develop your creativity. So you first develop that, then you learn to play a system. Kids should not be taught to play a system in hockey before 14 to 15 years of age when they already have built that foundation. I never really thought of that. Like even, like in, cool. even in football, like I, I always played zone defenses. But like again, outside of that, you, you lose that creativity because if you get stuck as a kid playing one system, you only know that system. You have no other models to compare yeah. to and use it. A lot and, of and hockey's bad for it. They did a study uh, with the, the, the German national soccer team. Uh, and they compared those from the national team and those from uh, like the lower divisions to see what was the difference between the top players and the second tier players. And they found that there was no significant difference in body type, in physical capacities, or even in the amount of practice in structured soccer. The two differences were that the ones on the national team had more unstructured play, like backyard soccer, Mm. backyard basketball, because then you don't follow the same rules. You just play by instinct, right? And the the team on the, the, the national team, the players on the national team specialized later. They didn't specialize only in soccer until they were 21 years of age. So they kept playing other sports, not necessarily at the competitive level, but they kept playing other sports. Whereas those who were lower levels, they had more structured play, they had less unstructured play, and they specialized earlier. That's interesting, and it sort of ties into what you said with the title of your book, you know, Fucking Up Kids. Uh, and I immediately thought of this book, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind. Did you read that? No, I didn't. Oh, fuck, it's fantastic. So it actually talks more about what's going on in U.S. college campuses and a lot of like the real extreme ideological left craziness that, you know, someone uses the wrong language in email and then a bunch of kids go nuts and then the person gets fired. So <clears throat> it actually talks in that book about that youngest generation, I think, I'm not sure the age range, but they're called iGen, I, the younger generation of millennials. Millennials are the ones that get the bad rap and how they have less unstructured playtime in life. And that is one of several things that the book really goes into detail, explaining more device time, like way more, which did those coincide. And a modern culture now, like think about it, like, Chris, I think you and I are probably roughly around the same age. I might be a little older. I'm 41. I'm not sure. But 41. 
Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, exactly. And I think you probably grew up like me in Canada, running around freely. We played right in the woods with other kids. We played sports, you name it, a lot of unstructured stuff. And now I think if you see a kid who's like six, seven years old running around by themselves, someone's calling the cops and some parents are <laughs> in trouble. And, and that's how people think now, right? Because there's true, this, the book talks about this explosion of fear of abduction. That Walsh guy in his show was kind of the thing that kicked that crap off. But the statistics on abductions of kids who are not not abducted by like a, another parent uh, are like just ridiculously low. So there's just sort of all this culture of fear built up by it. But the book goes into a shit ton of this stuff, but that's actually one of the things there. And there's just a lack of unstructured play. And it totally makes sense that unstructured sport play could be detrimental for these kids as well and lack of creativity. And just as a kid, when, when I mean... You see parents, first of all, they, they leave their kid, like when he's like a few months old, they, they always leave him in a cradle or yeah. like in that, that, that swing set or something because it's safe, right? They, they put barrier everywhere. Uh, every time the kid moves around, they, they just like make sure that he doesn't like That's endanger weird. himself. You know what? You never learn to be creative that way. You never learn to be a free spirit. You never learn to learn how to overcome failures. I mean, my kid falls all the time, and that's great because now he knows how not to fall, right? There's he, he never, I never put him in a cradle. He's always, and that that he's pretty cool like that because I just leave him on the floor with his toys, and will he will play by himself for four hours when I can I can work. But, but that's how kids, that's how it should be. The, the the second thing is right. What most parents do is what I call what I call lazy parenting. Uh, and I can understand where it comes from. Like both parents now, they, they both work, mm -hmm. right? So they, they come home very tired and the kid's crying. So what do they do? The first reflex is put the kid in the cradle and in front of the TV. Yeah. And yeah. I can guarantee that instant, instantly the kid will stop crying. Why? Not because of the pretty pictures, because of the blue light emitted by yeah. the TV. The That's blue light... Call. And that's on your TV, that's on your iPhone, that's on your on your, uh, your 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 tablet. The blue light strongly stimulates the dopamine receptors. That's why it is so addictive. That's why we can't stop looking at our phones because not only is it fun to see how many likes we get, you also get a pleasure response by targeting the dopamine receptors because of the blue light. Here's the problem, kids who don't have a fully formed brain, a fully formed nervous system, the dopamine receptors that are not even fully formed yet, they can very easily become desensitized by, by that dopamine stimulation, which is way too high for their brain to handle. They can actually fry their dopamine receptors. And in my opinion, that is, and of course, I can't prove that yet, and it's probably not going to be like studied because you can't like, I'm going to study putting kids on t in front of a TV for 20 hours a day to see what it does. But in reality, what it does is I'm pretty sure it has a very strong correlation between how lazy kids are nowadays. Because, okay, dopamine is, of course, the pleasure neurotransmitter, but it's also the neurotransmitter responsible for motivation. Yeah, learning. Because motivation is only seeking that pleasure response, right? I'm willing to work extra hard to get a pleasure response at the end. But if okay, the more sensitive your dopamine receptors are, the more motivated, the more competitive you are. Because the stronger will that pleasure response be. 
Now, if I completely destroy your dopamine receptors, it means it takes everything to get a small pleasure response, which means that you will not be motivated to get that pleasure response. So now you are that apathetic kid who doesn't want to work hard, doesn't, he stops as soon as he fails because he doesn't have that I want that reward behavior. Well, the only way to do that, he was taught to watch TV to get that dopamine response. So he learned that he needs that. So then that's when the, the more tablets come in, more movies, more blah, 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 blah. Because that's their brain evolved to learn from the dopamine. And they're learning. Absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. You've, you've actually now, that's sort of the second time you mentioned earlier about uh, kids seeking basically like growth. It's, it's totally growth mindset versus fixed mindset. So if you get kids who are banging up against failure and then stopping, um, then it's very, very fixed mindset. Whereas if you get kids who, okay, we've hit a challenge, all right, they're hungry to learn, they want to get better. And part of this stuff is is raising kids in an environment where they're not praised for their innate talent, but they're praised for their efforts. And you can really build someone who just consistently wants to get better. You can use some major athletes. Michael Jordan is, is a classic example of someone who's always described as being growth mindset. I think Mike Trout in Major League Baseball is a good example. Someone who works really hard at his craft and always wants to get better. I mean, you could be Ted Williams, who is regarded as one of the best hitters of all time, but the guy was a complete asshole in his life. Yeah. <laughs> so he can take it a bit too far. Yeah. But I think being really growth mindset is really important in fostering in young kids as they grow. Instead of just telling them how fucking good they are. Uh, the book Mindset by Carol Dweck, I think her name is. I might have that wrong. It, it does talk a lot about Jordan, but it also talks about John McEnroe. McEnroe is a very fixed mindset guy when... Ever he came up against something that questioned his talent and how great he was told he was, he's throwing rackets and screaming at people. And now it's a bit of a character. And when he's paid to do these celebrity performances, he has to throw a tantrum just for show. But when he was at the top of his game, it actually kept him from being a better player because he just didn't, he wasn't willing to work hard at and to understand that, okay, well, this was challenging. Therefore, I've got to work harder at this. I can get better. Yeah, and that's the problem with, I think, that people who are just, and okay, let's look at, uh, just to get back to early sports personalization, because mm -hmm. that, that, that will tie into what you just said. Uh, there was a, a study quoted by, uh, in Tudor Bumpo's book about, like, developing younger athletes, and the study was conducted with kids from 8 to 12, right until they were, like, in, uh, like, 18, 20 years of age. And what they noticed was uh, the group that specialized early in sports had the fastest improvement in performance in that sport, which, which makes sense, mm -hmm. right? So from the age of like 8 to 14, they were the best in their groups at that sport because they were practicing that sport over and over again. Whereas the, the group that didn't specialize, they, they, they were slower developing, but they developed for a longer period of time. And at, when they were 18, 19, 20, they, they were much better than those who specialized early. Now, the problem is that the, the study also found that those who specialize early, when they reach a later age, they, they were a lot more uneven in competition and were more prone to choking. Hmm. The reason is that for their formative years, where the brain gets, well, your, your personality develops at an enhanced speed, 8, 9, 10, 12, 15 years of age, they were always the best in their group because they were specializing in their sport. When they reach a point where the kids who develop at a slower pace 
caught up to them. And because of their, their multi-sport background, they had better physical capacity. They had better motor skill. Now they were better athletes than they were. So now the kids that were the best are not the best anymore, but they never learned to cope with not being the best. And they, they, they acted like John McEnroe. They, they either threw up a tantrum, they, they rebel against their coach because if they're failing, it can't be them because I'm the best. It must be my coach. Absolutely. And that's so fixed mindset. And then you throw into the mix parents who are screaming at the coach. Well, it's not even bad sports parents. It all comes down to the model, though. It's, it's, it's the same reason with hockey. It's, it, no one gives a shit about the pros when you're below a pro team. Like all those junior teams, AAA, blah, blah. They just want to win. They don't give a fuck about the like, – I, I know they do, but they really don't. Yeah, That's a win-at-all-cost yeah. system. And that, that's a system that puts the coach and the parent above the need of the athlete. Yeah. Because the coach, okay, the mindset of the coach, I've been a coach. I've, I've coached high school football and college football for 12 years. And I've coached uh, like very young athletes. Very well. And I've been around many, many different types of coaches. And many coaches, they use athletes to boost their own career. <laughs> the coach who coaches uh, uh, like Bantam Hockey, he wants to coach midget. He wants them to coach junior. And he wants to coach pro, right? So, so right from he's coaching 12-year-old kids, but he's coaching them as if he was coaching the Pittsburgh Penguins. <laughs> yeah. It's like they are Mike Keenan, right? They want to prove that they know all the complex system. And that, that, I remember, dude, I was playing baseball when I was six years of age. And that's a true story. I was, I, I was seven, okay? And my coach called me up one day and said, Christian, I've been just hired at a, like a higher uh, level coaching. So like going from double A to triple A, right? At seven-year-old kids. And, and they asked me who I wanted to bring up. And I mean, I, I know I said, I want to bring that guy, that guy. And I also want that Thibodeau guy. I mean, his, his knees are completely shot. He's over the hill, but he's got great mentality. I mean, dude, dude I'm seven. My <laughs> knees are not shot. But that's, yeah, that, that's the kind of conversation that you would have about a 35-year-old catcher. <laughs> right when you're a pro coach but the guy acted as if he was a pro coach because that's how most of these hockey coaches uh baseball coaches football coaches with very young athletes they see themselves as you know what i'm just as good as that barry trotz guy yeah. i need my shot if i get my shot i'll be just as good as him so you use that win at all cost mentality because the more you win the better you put yourself forward the more chances you have to get up. Whereas it should be the athlete's first mentality. Here's something interesting. And I don't know where I read this, but there was some study on like all the major pro North American sports. And this is pretty advanced. So they based the performance of the teams on all of these metrics of the, the talent, the level of ability of all the players on the teams. And what they were doing is they were looking to see if there was any difference in coaching style and its impact on the team. One coach across four major sports had a very noticeable improvement on the quality of the team's outcome in terms of wins. And everything else was, it didn't seem like the coach mattered. It was more predictive of the, the talent of the team. And it was a basketball team. And I'll see if you guys can guess this. And it was a coach legendary for his personal relationships with his players, not so much his systems. Any guess real quick as to which coach... Probably. Who? Phil Jackson, I would say. No, actually, Greg Popovich. 
Really? <laughs> the Spurs, yeah. So right, because Phil Jackson is seen as that that that, that, that the Zen guy, the, the the philosopher. So who did yeah. Phil Jackson have on his teams? That Jackson, of course. Uh, Jordan, that helps. Pippen, that helps. Jordan, Pippen, Rodman, Shaq, Kobe, and so. The outcomes were exceptional, but so yeah. were the teams, so were the talent level. No one's arguing that Phil Jackson is not a great coach because he knows actually harnesses, but he had that level of player and that yeah. level of talent. Now, I think Popovich teams were great too, but it just seemed that based on this study, Popovich really stood out. And here's the key. Popovich was a guy who really took the time to get to know his players personally. He would have them over for dinner. He would get to know the guy and then select a wine that seemed to suit that player's personality. So Greg was taken to another level. So this guy was just truly legendary for his success. And it was because he's actually not just kids, but like, like adults who ostensibly are mature, certainly superstars who often get spoiled by the limelight. And he's investing in these personal relationships. And the Spurs have been a super team for a long time. And you could argue that, you know... Even when they rotated players in and out, they still yeah. maintain a very high level of performance. Exactly, right? So, and that, I think, speaks to it. So, it, it goes back to what you're saying about, uh, you know, coaching kids. And, you know, and I don't work in a team setting with kids. I got some younger athletes uh, individually. But I could see how just investing in the kids and what's best for them would have great long-term outcomes instead of just uh, pushing team systems. And, I mean, teaching them the discipline to play systems, I think there's value in that. I think that's great. As long as all it's the not suppressing creativity. Well, all the systems, they, they yeah, they need to see the patterns. So if they don't, if they only know one system, they don't recognize other patterns. It's Absolutely. Just, yeah. And then you have a player who's going to be great when he falls in a team mm. that plays his system. But as soon as he's traded to a different team, he just crumbles under pressure, or just he can't can't apply it. Right. But if you're a great athlete, if you, you then you can play any system. Like, I, I, if you watch like a hockey game or a soccer game, what and you see a great goal. By Messi or by 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 Crosby, you'll never hear the sportscaster saying, "Oh, look at how he applied the system, <laughs> dude. Where did he take that? Where did he learn to do that? Because that's what sets up those stars apart from the like good players who will be good within a system. Then you have those who are a step above, or those who have the greatest natural skill." Thus, they also have the greatest. I mean, okay, to be a great athlete, you you need great motor coordination, and that that requires developing fully the visual system, the proprioceptive system, the vestibular system, also the coordination between the the visual and proprioceptive system. That's super key, and also you need a creativity, and finally you need dopamine sensitivity. Because dopamine sensitivity is what get, what makes you driven. That's what makes you motivated. That's also what makes you confident. People who have a high dopamine sensitivity, they are not afraid of failing. Because throughout all their lives, they failed many times to get that reward. Those who have dopamine resistance, they, they, they stop trying as soon as it gets hard. You can't be a great athlete like that. So you need all of that. And, and that is really set up in the first four or five years of a kid's life. So that's why I say, I mean, your kid sucks and it's your fault because it's hundred. What, what happens to your kid between zero to zero five? It's 100% you, yeah. 100% you, all the decisions you make when you decide that, you know what, you just work hard. You prefer to drink a beer with your buddies than play with your kid for 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. But you know what, that 30 minutes might've made the difference between him sucking and him being a great person and then a great athlete that's so important 
I'm going to, I, I like that song. I'm going to actually shift us now because we basically just said fuck it to the script earlier on, but again, <laughs> it, it kind of actually went through way better. Than we just got to talk about what we want. But I, I, I really did want to ask this. So, uh, so you've worked in the industry for a long time, like long enough, certainly to see major changes and trends in our world of fitness industry. Um, where do you feel that this has caused more harm than good to people, the end user? Uh, and their ability to improve. Oh shoot! I screwed that question up. I just shoot. I, guys, I apologize. I'm off today. Yes. So this I, is I, great. I, I tease them all the time. Fucking up questions. So, okay. You've worked in the industry for a long time. You've seen major changes and trends. What are the most significant differences between now and when you began your career? And what's changed for the better? And what problems have emerged? Yeah, I screwed up your question. Well, it's really to me of course i think the easy answer i'm gonna take the easy answer but then i'm gonna like try to make it sound a bit better <laughs> uh, it's social media right uh, social media transform our industry and nowadays you can become if you look at trainers you can become an instant success even with zero competency yeah. you can be an incompetent douchebag who never coach a person in real life and now you can make hundreds of thousands of dollars with selling online programs just because you have chiseled abs. That, that's the first thing, right? Mm -hmm. So now, so, so why, okay, I, I'm an educator and you guys are educators too. Why would someone buy your course or come to your seminars if they don't feel like they need that to make a good living? Those who come to seminars come mostly not to become better at their craft because it's their own for their own personal interest. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, they apply it. But the coach who just wants to make money, he can just use the social media and use proper branding and he's going to make a living. Right. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing. But but the, the other side of social media is that it gave people uh, an um, unrealistic perception of what is achievable via training and nutrition. Right. Because you have those po people posting like transformation, you know, I gained 25 pounds of muscle in three months. Uh, I, I lost X amount of fat and people think that, you know what, this is normal. You know what? It's normal if you're on steroids and that's the thing or if you detrain. So, so the problem is now they, they, the, per the person goes on social media or on the Internet and they, they, they look at all of these and they believe that you know, it's normal to gain 20 pounds of muscle in three months. If they don't achieve that, they panic. They, they use drugs and stuff. You know what? The, 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 the actual amount of muscle you can build is t between 20 and 40 pounds of muscle for your whole lifting career. So if your normal adult weight would have been 165, 175 pounds, the most you can be in lean condition would be around 215, maybe 220, after many, many years of training. And, and even in a, in a year, or in a year, you can gain at the fastest a quarter to half a pound of muscle per week. And that's if you do everything perfect. And you're a beginner. Everything perfect. And that's even that's that's not even sustainable for a long time. Yeah. That is what re, that what is realistic. Yes, in some periods you will gain more weight. I've trained hockey players who've gained 15 pounds in two months because they were regaining muscle they lost during the season. Mm -hmm. Myself, and that's one thing. I mean, I love T Nation. I love the guys. But when they when they were using my story for let's say the uh, some product we're using, Christian Thibodeau gained 20 pounds of muscle in two months. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but 
I had not trained for six months before because of an injury and a heart failure. And of course, I just regained the muscle. So, so yes, that is possible. But it, that is because of muscle memory. See, when you build muscle, you maintain the nucleus you build. So even if the fibers atrophy, you still maintain the added nucleus you build via hypertrophy. So it's very easy to just expand those muscles. But building new muscle tissue, a quarter to half a pound per week is the most you can hope to achieve in normal situation. See, and funny thing is, like, social media is definitely amplifying this stuff. But this crap's been around for a long time in the form of infomercials and bodybuilding magazines, Cosmopolitan, stuff like this. So people have been getting this, like, this bullshit what's what's possible for a long time. But now it's ubiquitous. The muscle thing's the worst. It's, like, yeah. literally, like you said, like, I've been... We've all been trying to gain muscle. Like it takes it takes forever. Like it's it's way harder than losing weight. It is. It, it, losing fat is super easy. Yeah. Losing fat is super easy. Gaining muscle is hard. It's much much slower process. And the problem is that now, if you have those those false expectations, unrealistic expectation, in my opinion, it, it undermines how the amount of effort required to progress. So, so people, they don't realize how hard they have to work for how long and do everything right for, for over the long run. So when they don't get immediate results, they just assume. And I've actually had one athlete tell me that I was he's a sprinter I was working with or he asked me to work with him. And after a month, he says he said, I don't believe in training. Like, like <laughs> training doesn't work. Dude, you, you train for a month. And I've seen the intensity you put in the gym because that's the thing with sprinters, yeah. right? Sprinters, oh, yeah. uh, they normally are very lazy. And that's a neurological thing. They are extremely sensitive to dopamine. Yeah. Uh, and that's a different topic. But they have very, very high serotonin because that people who are great under pressure, they tend to have very high serotonin levels because you know you, you are aware of the inverted U hypothesis curve. There is an optimal neurological activation to be in to perform. If your brain is not activated enough, you underperform because you're lazy, the muscles don't contract hard, the velocity of action is slower, you're thinking slower. But if the nervous system fires too fast, that's when you choke. Choking under pressure is simply because your brain, your, your, your neurons are firing too fast for you to control the processes. So instead of a, because when the nervous system starts firing on all cylinders, you start thinking, thinking faster. But if you're overactivated instead of thinking faster, you're overthinking. Paralysis by analysis. Mm -hmm. When your nervous system gets amped up, the muscles are contracting harder. But if they get over amped up, then the, the increase in muscle strength becomes increase in muscle tension, especially in the flexor muscles. So when you have tight muscle, it completely changes your mechanics. So the, 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 these are the two reasons why people choke. So you want to be in that optimum zone perform so when the brain starts to get over amped up you need to bring it back down that's the job of serotonin serotonin is the mood balancer serotonin keeps you in the optimum zone for what you need to do right now the problem is that serotonin also calms you down if you have plenty of serotonin it's going to be really hard for you to get amped up but you're going to stay in the zone when you get there so a sprint typical sprinter basketball player running back they come into the gym, they just want to chat, they want to have fun, they don't want to train. Then they see someone lifting, are they going to get into it? And then they want to win. Then they get they become machines. Yeah, it takes them like absolutely. 30 minutes to get into it. But once they get into it, they are unbeatable and they, they, they won't choke under pressure. I think you probably see what you described, that kind of great point on the U-curve in athletes that are just 
cool and good under pressure. I think most recently we saw this with Kawhi Leonard in the NBA playoffs. Yeah. He's just someone who, he seems to have a lot of really good qualities, mental makeup. He, he seems very humble as a person, which I really admire the hell out of. Um, and he just seems really, really cool under pressure. And we just saw that. Well, time he played well on the top stage. Like, and I think that that's the Raptors technically aren't the best team, but they were the best team under those conditions. Like they fucking mocked Golden State. Like it's, it's kind of cool. I think you say the same thing about Steph Curry. I mean, ultimately, the, the outcome, the Warriors didn't win this year. But Curry also seems to be one of these guys with that sort of talent. We've mentioned Michael Jordan, without a doubt. Wayne Gretzky, without a doubt. Uh, some of the, the all-time greats. Well, uh, any, Tom any, Brady. Any, Tom Brady. Absolutely. Yeah, he's probably the best of the well, best. Well, it's interesting you mentioned this, even with the sprinters, because we were just down with, with Phil, the stronger experts in Jamaica. Um, and all like the top end sprinters, they're all like that. And so like, that's one of the sports where like, it's almost like you have to self-select to get there. So you're going to see more of that, but yeah, they're all so chill. None, Mm -hmm. they all hate training (laughs) and they're all super fast, but yeah, it's it's weird. Like they all like it's, it's interesting culture. Like sprinting. Francis said that sprinters are born, not made. And that's not just regarding their muscle fiber makeup. They, they, they have a, a, a different type of nervous system. Very, very high dopamine. A sprinter they are all arrogant. I mean, mm-hmm. you've seen that, right? They, have, oh, they yeah. are all cocky, right? But but that comes from a very high sensitivity to dopamine that makes them very confident. And they are, normally they have zero empathy because they don't need other people to tell them they're good, to know they're good. So if you... Okay, me, I have a lower level of self-esteem. So I need guys to like me <laughs> to feel good about myself, right? So So I will actually be a great guy. I will be fun to be around. I love chatting. I love to help people out. Not because I like them. I don't like them. I need <laughs> them to like me. That's different. But a sprinter, someone who's very confident, they don't need other people to tell them they're good, to know they're good. So they often don't care about other people. They are often seen as individualistic assholes. But everybody's an asshole. There's not okay, – good guys don't exist. Bad guys don't exist. Uh, everybody is self-centered. However – we will always act in a way to give our brain what it needs to be happy. Mm-hmm. Me, I need others to like me. So I will act in a way to get people mm-hmm. to like me, and then I will be seen as a good guy. If someone, what it needs, what, what his brain needs is to win, because every time you win, you get a dopamine response. So if you're super sensitive to dopamine, you need to win then fuck the other people because I need to win, not them. Me, when I competed, the best position for me to finish in in was third. I always dreamt about finishing third because if I finish first, the set, the guy who's in second will hate me. Yeah, if forever. I finish third, I'm good enough to be respected, yeah. but the top two guys will still like me. That's how messed up I am. I, I wonder, like, it's interesting though because, like, you say that and I think that, like, I won't say that there's any predictive element to like sports and stuff, but there's some truth to that. Like you may not know that, but there's a lot of people that would, they could have possibly won, but somewhere deep down inside, they like, you know, that, that goes down a really deep hole of sports psychology. But like, I believe that to some extent for sure. They don't want the pressure. They just want to be good enough that people think that they're good, but like, they don't want to, they don't want to be on that top stage. That's the best example, Max Petrovetti. And, and it's funny mm. because, you know, Max, uh, I've actually, uh, I, I taught to his, his trainer, Ben Prentice, who has a, his gym in Connecticut. He trains many NHLers, and I went there to teach his staff. And I, I talked about Max because, of course, being in from, 
Quebec City or Montreal. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Montreal Canadian fan, and of course Max Pacioretty. It was like, one of the best goal scorer for the first six years of his career. Over yeah. that six-year span, he was the fourth best goal scorer in the league. Yeah. Then they gave him the captaincy, and boom, yeah. <laughs> went completely down, completely down. And then he was traded to to Vegas. Of course, he was injured, but then he finished very strong. And, I, and my theory was that he's that kind of guy. He's a people pleaser. He, he yeah. needs other people to respect him, but he doesn't love pleasure. The reason that he doesn't love pressure is that he's, he's like me. He's very amped up by adrenaline. So when you get adrenaline, he's amped up. He performs better. However... That also means that if you're super sensitive to adrenaline, it's very easy to get your brain over-amped up. So when you have the pressure of the game, plus the pressure of being the captain, the pleasure, the pressure of making sure the locker room is in control, that might be too much for him. That puts him over the edge. Now he is in the bad side of the inverted new hypothesis curve. When so he, and, and when he, he went to Vegas, he was just an he, assistant, and that he was well. great in Vegas too. And he like he just yeah. got to do what he did, which was be a pretty good player that everyone thought was pretty good. Well, I think exactly. it all, part of this too is the environment. Montreal is one of the toughest media markets uh, for in the NHL. Uh, there are certain other ones. I think Toronto is a tough one. Boston is a really tough one. Even here in Edmonton, it's pretty rough on the players. So you probably have to have a certain mindset where you thrive on that attention. Whereas a lot of NHL players no one knows who like are. going to places like Nashville and Los Angeles, San Jose are two popular, popular destinations. I think maybe the California lifestyle is one thing, but you're also not the biggest superstar there because you have all the other like major Like McDavid here, like, so McDavid in Edmonton is like essentially God. And Wayne Gretzky could still walk in and he, he could have everything paid for. Like he wouldn't, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like in these small markets, like, the players are the biggest rock star humanly possible. Yeah. And they better be able, they better enjoy that. They better, better be able to thrive on it. And I can see someone like Kawhi Leonard who, on one hand, I think he's probably cool with, you know, being the, the, the star of Canada in terms of basketball. But I also would be kind of surprised to see him go sign with a team like the New York Knicks or the Los Angeles Lakers or... The, the biggest media markets. He is from LA and, and there's some talk about him going to the Clippers, but the Clippers do not get the kind of attention that the Lakers do. And I, I see an athlete like him probably thriving in a market where it's not crazy high, um, high attention, right? Where someone like Carmelo Anthony, Kevin Durant, uh, Kobe Bryant, some of the guys who are, they're talented, but they're kind of these Arrogant, arrogant shitheads, if that makes sense, right? They, <laughs> that's they, a good way of putting it. That's, that's, yeah. Cocky players. I think they want, want to be the star. Someone was saying recently that Jeremy Lin got a, a ring, right, on the Raptors. He was on the bench. And sort of someone, had, there's this meme going around about all the different whatever. It's a picture of Mello and Lin. And it, it, it sounds like they're referring to Mello, but actually they're referring to Jeremy Lin sticking around. But I heard that Mello, when Lin's sanity took off in New York, Mello actually was pissed at his attention and pretty much just campaigned to get him traded off the team and get rid of him. And so, and of course, Mello doesn't have a championship. He's a shitty player anyway. I don't think he's very good. So, but I still like him. I actually, I think we should pivot here because this is, we said a lot of politically incorrect things. And I think that this kind of goes into what we wanted to talk to was you've had criticisms of political correctness seeping into our industry. Where do you feel this has caused more harm than good to people and their ability to improve in their health? And even just whatever realm we want to go into. What do you mean exactly? Like, 
So basically, we're trying to be too politically correct nowadays, especially in the fitness industry, that we're not getting results. Like, people aren't getting results because they're being too fucking easy on them. Ah, uh, dude, that, that, that's absolutely correct. I mean, we, we, we are, we are <laughs> soft world, right? Soft world. I mean, uh, I, I think that we are both, like, pretty much against everything that is uh, left wing here, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, of course, I, I'm, I'm worse off than you guys are because I live in Quebec City. And Quebec City is is kind of like Cuba, so <laughs> in the middle of the leftist society, which is really hard for me. I mean, I'm paying like fifty percent fucking taxes and uh, income taxes and fifteen percent sales taxes, <laughs> money to people who, who stopped going to school when they were in grade school or who had have a college degree in human philosophy, <laughs> cool, but don't expect making money from that. Anyway, when it comes to training, I think it's and I was having this conversation when I was the last time in Australia. I am I'm only mentioning that because it makes me sound important. Uh, so I was in Australia <laughs> with a good uh, example. Yeah. I was with uh, Dane McDonald for the for the, the Clean Health Fitness Institute. Like Dane has been uh, around the blog for a while. I mean he's been in the, the fitness business for a while. He, he worked with Charles Polican for a long time. And we we all because he is firm is all based on the before after physique transformations, right? And, and and the day I was there, they would act. They actually had that photo shoot for their clients. And, and don't get me wrong, the clients were in great shape. The women were awesome, and they took a group picture. And then Dane showed me a group picture from 15 years ago when he was running the business. And it's like the the, the after picture of the group from this year <laughs> looked like the before picture. From his own era. And I think that's because we just worked a hell of a lot harder mm-hmm. than people nowadays. I think that it's, it, it, it's, it, it, people, wait, 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 the best example I can give you, okay, flexible dieting. Okay, yeah. I, I love donuts and burgers just as much as the next guy. I mean, to be honest, if you want to give someone the shittiest example of how to eat, my diet would be it because it's funny. People think that Christian Thibodeau right, is in great shape. He must always eat clean. Dude, I have the shittiest diet ever. I must have fast thyroid. I don't know, but I, I, I don't gain too much fat. But anyway, nowadays, people want to be told, you know what? As long as it fits your macros, yeah, you can have that cake. That's fine. You know what? When I competed, the few times I competed in bodybuilding, you know what? When you wanted to get in shape, you, you did have to suffer a bit. It had to be somewhat uncomfortable. Uh, and you got in great shape. Nowadays, people, they prefer to take more growth hormone or take mm-hmm. those SARMs because, you know, SARMs are not drugs, right? <laughs> drugs, dude. They're, dude, they're drugs. <laughs> Just drugs. Yeah. I can get it. I can get it online. Yeah, you can probably get meth online. <laughs> you can on the dark web. There's a whole documentary on it. You know, SARMs are drugs. They, they might not be quite as powerful as steroids, but pretty darn close. And now I can I can guarantee that most of the influencers you see who claim to be natural on using hefty doses of SARMs, and because they just don't want to work hard. I mean, I'm not gonna gonna blow smoke up your ass, right? Uh, I've used steroids when I was younger. Yeah, that I've. When you are passionate about training, I think you're gonna try everything a few times. When I competed in bodybuilding, I didn't have a choice. A choice, and you know what? I actually got my better physique. When I was not using steroids, of course, there's the argument that the muscle you gain while you're on, you maintain the nucleus, so building muscle becomes easier after that. So I, I will accept that argument. I'm not saying I'm a saint, but 
I know that, and I've done it for my last two photo shoot, natural. Uh, I'm not taking anything for at least 11 years because of health issues. And I needed to work extra fucking hard. And, and that's the thing, right? I know both sides of the force. I've worked with pro bodybuilders and I work with Olympians. I work with people who, who took drugs and people who were natural. And I guarantee that those who are natural, they do need to be more disciplined. Mm -hmm. They do need to work hard. The problem is that during my time, I'm, I'm not that old, but people, <laughs> those who were getting into drugs were getting into drugs once they built a very good foundation through hard work, discipline, nutrition. Then they reach a certain point where they didn't have a choice if they want to take it up at next level. Nowadays, you have guys who take steroids and don't even train. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not shitting you. I've, I've seen girls take Anavar just to look leaner on the beach and they don't train. That's How scary. Is that, right? well, it's just that culture is just created of, and, and that might go down to generational, but like they just don't work hard enough. And you, you've, you've talked to Pat Davidson. He had a whole book called Mass and Mass 2, which is literally just fucking smashing people in the ground with volume. But it's just that whole idea of dopamine and just you have to get this and that and work harder to get this number. But if you don't have that and you don't have that ability to work hard, like, good luck. That's the thing. That's the thing. If, if for us who do have that, because those of us who got into training like 20 years ago, mm -hmm. 25 years ago, uh, it was a passion. It was a passion. Nowadays, people get into training to get that cool photo for Instagram <laughs> or get some attention when they go clubbing. And like, so it's, of course, you're not, you're not gonna have the same mindset. And is that even polit politically incorrect? Like, I guess that's just the state of the, the state of where we're at. Like, because I would say that the new people coming up, it's not the same. Because before, like you said, and we didn't have social media, we, we had to really like it because we saw a magazine or we saw this. Like, it, it was stupid to do it because no one was doing it. So you had no other choice but to work hard. But you know, you know, there's a point here that that I want to make. It's not directly related, but you said something really interesting. It looks stupid, but we did it anyway. Yeah. I think that's why I love when I want to learn something new. I read a book from the fifties. That's what I because was. back then there was no social media. Yeah. You didn't care if you look foolish in the gym. I'm gonna try something. If that works, I'm gonna keep it in. Yeah. Nowadays, you do what you've seen glued girl 257 on the Instagram yeah. do. And everybody <laughs> trains the same, everybody becomes a robot. Uh, you know what, it, it just sucks. There's no innovation in training anymore because people just wanna, it's more important to blend in the mass, to belong mm -hmm. to a group. Oh, I, I can't eat that because my keto support group will not like it. <laughs> Bro, but there, there is like you go to Good Life and like evolves a different. He works out at a gym where like everyone's pretty serious. But like I recently started going back to the gym because I had my own studio, and like everyone's just zombies. Like and they're not working that hard. And like I remember when I was in the gym, like I went to like this small gym in St. Albert, but it was all like meatheads because people working out at seven in the morning had to be jacked because like there's no other point to go. I was uh, a few years back. I was at Dave Tate's compound. Yeah. yeah. And during the weekend, Dave was, it was also like the, the elite FTS, uh, like showroom. So all the equipment, like super awesome, right? Now, Dave was sponsoring many top level powerlifters. So all the weekends, the, these guys would come to Ohio and train. So uh, when I was there, you had 
uh, I saw three guys squat over 960 the same day. Yeah. And uh, that's where I actually got my best bench press. I bench pressed 440 just because I was training there. I mean, yeah. I needed to do that because otherwise they would have made me bench with the girls. But, but <laughs> the, 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 what I, I was just looking at these guys and just the amount of animalistic intensity. It was nasty. And when I come home, I came home because at the time, okay, when I got married, I moved back to Canada because my wife doesn't speak English, and I started just working in a regular commercial gym. My office was in a regular commercial gym, and I was looking at people training, and I'm thinking to myself, dude, not a single person here trains remotely hard enough to even get the smallest amount of gains. And I thought to myself, it's a good thing I don't have a client today, because I would have tell, tell them, you know what, I'm going to take your money, but you're not going to get any fucking results because you're going to train like a pussy. And that's probably what would have happened. Well, and the and thing, well, I was going to say, yeah. You look impotent because these guys don't train hard. Well, and right now it's almost, I hate the bash science, but like we have like a lot of guys that have this research out is like, you got to increase the volume and you got to go to failure. But like people use science to back up the fact that they're not working hard. Like, well, I just have to get more volume. Like you Dude, just. I was going to make that exact point. Like, like they literally, like they use it like, I'm just going to get more volume and do this and this. There's no intensity there. So like, your volume is not, I'm not counting any of that. Paul Carter was on with us um, a few weeks ago and he said something, the same thing. He really kind of pushed back against the, the volume doctrine and, and really emphasized that training intensity, just hard fucking training. And then, and then add volume. To growing. And then add volume onto it. Like your volume has to count. I think that there's no debating, and I agree with Mike and with Pat, that if you want to keep growing over time, you do have to increase your tonnage. Mm -hmm. So you, you need a higher workload over time. Does it mean that you need to increase volume every month or even every every two or three months? It's just gradually add more volume. But the qualitative element is has to be there yeah. before the, the quantitative element comes in. Well, and, and I think that, that the one thing with the – the, the, the evidence-based crowd, and I, and, and I love science, okay? The problem is that I, I, I think that those who are our core trainees, like Mike, mm -hmm. tell, and they also get into science, they get the right formula because they naturally train fucking hard, yeah. right? But now you have those guys on the internet who are 165 pounds, they, 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 they don't really know what hard work is because they probably never had a physical labor job in their life. I mean, their hardest they've worked in their life when they when they they have to clean up their room if they do it. So now, how can these guys train hard in the gym? Now you have the science; they can use that as an excuse not to train hard, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm gonna follow the science. Science says I need to do this and that, and they forget the most important variable: hard work and suffering. I mean, exactly. I mean, the the, the uh, when I uh, the, the, when, the when I give a seminar, the the the, the first thing I say that there are only two really important things to get maximum results. Hard work and fixing your weaknesses. These are the only two things that really, really matters. If you train very hard on the most basic training program known to man, you're going to get better results than the one who trains with the best scientifically designed program if he trains at 80%. All the time. Every time. Wonderful. Well, and that gives like the argument of like, like I think it was Krieger. Like he said, like now they're going back to the volume, but it has to be intensity levels. But like for people to actually understand intensity levels, like I don't know the solution. Like it's basically smash them to the ground until they understand what failure is. Well, something that seems to keep coming up uh, that the smart people who are still volume <clears throat> based in their evidence approach is that you've got to get near failure consistently yeah. with hard sets. So yeah. I, you hear this a lot. <clears throat> Um, volume of hard sets 
or you have to train within one to two reps of failure consistently. And I think those people generally have it right. Because I think if you're doing that, you're probably training with a good intensity. If you're emphasizing intense volume, you're going to make good progress. People are just doing junk volume who aren't approaching failure. That's where you're just not getting great. This results. is where like, and we, we kind of had this question and I know we kind of, we might've skipped it, but like, have you looked at any of the velocity based stuff? Just giving like an objective number on what slow, intense reps should be. Yeah, I, I've used velocity based at one point with athletes. Uh, what I personally noticed is that at, when I when I use it on myself, it felt like I was training in a dentist's office. <laughs> you know what I mean, right? Yeah. It's like you become like it, it feels artificial. You're thinking more about looking at the metrics yeah. rather than just creating the intensity. Mm -hmm. And I think that velocity-based training has its place when training athletes. Mm -hmm. Uh, because at one point you want to increase the capacity to produce speed against moderate to heavy loads. Uh, it can help you regulate intensity with, with athletes who don't necessarily need to build lots of muscle, who don't necessarily need to become a lot stronger, uh, and they need to manage nervous system fatigue. I see a point to it. For example, in season, in season with an athlete, let's say that I want to squat. But I know that if I push the squat like very hard, then they're probably going to like burn out their nervous system and it's going to affect their game. So by using velocity-based training, you can say, okay, I'm going to test how fast I can move 80% at the beginning of the off-season. And my goal will not be to increase my squat weight during the season, but to maintain my speed at 80%. Mm -hmm. If I maintain my speed at 80%, I'm pretty much the same strength, which is what I want during the season. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to minimize uh, nervous system demands. Mm -hmm. However, when it comes to developing strength and size, I, I don't really like it as a tool, personally. I will use it as a testing measure. Yeah. I use it with specific exercises that target speed. If I'm doing, for example, I'm doing a snatch grip high pull, for example. Well, to me, the snatch grip high pull has to be the same speed as a snatch. Yeah. Otherwise, there's very little transfer. So if I measure my snatch and it's that sounds kind of weird. Uh, <laughs> you said it. Politically, politically incorrect. <laughs> if I, if I'm, let's say my, 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 my barbell snatch is, <laughs> let's say, 0 0.9 meter per second. And if my snatch grip high pole is 0 0.75, it's too slow. I want to use it to either get similar gains that I would get with a snatch or to improve my snatch pole. So I need to be around that same speed. Maybe I'm going to accept 10%, 6 10% slower speed, but not that much. So that that can be useful, but I don't see a purpose for hypertrophy. And when you talk about like the uh, like I mean, leaving one to two reps in the tank, I think that is absolutely correct for like pretty much everything we do in the gym. The only, in my opinion, the only exercises where you should go to failure. Uh, most of the time are isolation exercises because they don't have a, a large neurological demand yeah, there's no stress. on on exercises on machines even if they're multi-joint if you go to failure that's not going to kill you but i wouldn't target that i yeah. wouldn't like try to reach that voluntarily and on multi-joint movement with free weights i would never i mean i even when I was an Olympic weightlifter, I, my best squat was 600. My best front squat, 485. I never missed a squat. I, in my life, I don't remember ever missing a squat or a bench. Never. There's no, there's no reason for that. You're adding so much injury risk that I just don't think you're paying it off in reward. 
So we've got Lee Boyce ready to jump on with this in a few minutes. And like, I'd actually go for another hour easily with you, Christian. But so first things first, you're welcome back anytime. And I'm going to make a point of trying to get you back pretty soon when the schedule works, because I got a feeling we could just let you go all day and you just got so much fun, passionate stuff to talk about. But we definitely want to do uh, a couple things. Um, <clears throat> first, we've been, oh, you're one of the few guests in this little run that isn't yet a part of our uh, Canadian Evolve Strength Symposium that we're hosting here September 14th, 15th. Me, Dean, uh, Dean Somerset is presenting one of our partners. We've got a couple other partners in this. And so we're bringing our speakers on. And so while we're far from promising this, but Christian saw it, and again, most of our speakers are Canadian. So Christian's like, hey, I'd love to be included. So in the plausible scenario where we can sneak you into this whole event. We won't make any promises. We will. But you you and I have been talking a lot about we're going to try to see if uh, we can lock you down for next year as a guest here. So we're pretty excited about that. And then we just want to let people know where to find you. Yeah, we're really fine all, all your stuff. Well, of course, I've been a, a writer on T Nation for, I think, 20 years now. Tw 20 years, right? <laughs> uh, so T Nation, of course, and my own website, tbarmi.com, uh, which is the same handle on social media, tbarmi on Instagram. You might even catch a glute shot here and there, which <laughs> is really pathetic because I have no glutes. I mean, literally zero. I look like an old man butt. If you look at me from behind, I look like I'm 80 years old. <laughs> So that, that's why I, I don't have 200,000 followers. That's, that's I don't right. have big glutes. Yeah. <laughs> and your website's good. You have like you have quite a bit of coaches writing for you on there. So there's lots of stuff. It's not just you. No, no, exactly. exactly. Uh, originally, it was the, the goal was to have as many coaches right there as possible. So we have uh, even a few CrossFit coaches because, you know, I, I'm not like against CrossFit. Of course, I, I think it could be done better. Uh, but if there's one thing that CrossFit brought to the table, and I think it, it it solves some of the issues that we have with the, the modern society is that it, it taught people what hard training was. Yep. It's probably stupid hard training, but <laughs> at least you need to know what hard training is to scale it down a notch. Because the problem is, like, people are big on the RPE scale, right? Mm -hmm. The rate of perceived effort. I mean, Mike uses that a lot. Of course, uh, some powerlifters use that. The problem is that for most people, okay, uh, 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 an, a seven point, an eight RP, an RP of eight, you are leaving two reps in a tank. That's what an RP of eight is, two reps in a tank. The problem is that most people, what they perceive is an eight is really a six. Or a five most or four. Most people in the gym, when they think they are leaving two reps in a tank, they are leaving four or five. That's the problem. Yeah. So with these people who don't know what a true 10 is, you tell them to train with the RPE system, they will always train too easily. They don't push hard enough because they don't have a, a, like a, a real knowledge of what pushing a set to the limit really is. They just shut down. And with beginners, I believe that with beginners, it's actually impossible for them to reach true muscle failure. They will shut down before that and they will have what I call inhibitory failure. They basically shut down some muscles way before they get fatigued as a protective mechanism. So, so they're just fooling themselves. So I, yeah, I, I like the RPE system. I like the increasing volume over time system. But if you don't have the basis, which is knowing what hard training is, then you, all of these things, they, they won't work for you and they probably will make you undertrain. 
I like, got, we got a little more time. Lee just texted me, so we I, got, I, I was we just got like, more minutes, I was like, just like, <laughs> we're gonna end this by like telling everyone you're too politically correct. You don't fucking work that hard. Your RPE is like total shit. Like, get it, get with it. Hopefully, someone's listening to this and they're like, "Fuck, I suck so much. I'm gonna go work harder." Like, I think that's what? the message at the end of the day. If your trainer is a cheerleader, you should change trainer. <laughs> if you yourself, you see yourself as a cheerleader, change job. Seriously. I mean, you're not there to make friends. I'm, I'm, I'm a nice person, except for the training session. <laughs> for my, the, the best, it's funny because I was teaching um, uh, an Olympic lifting workshop in Switzerland, which is only, again, just to make myself look important. But it was a pretty cool seminar because my friend was teaching the power lift. I was teaching the Olympic lift. And the best, and people were having fun with that because the best compliment I give is when I tell someone, you are less bad. Yeah, that, that's the highest praise you can get from me. Mm-hmm. Which is good. I, I think that like there needs to be a little bit more of that. And I think like we, we joke about being politically correct, but at the end of the day, like you gotta like even as coaches, we just gotta be a little bit harder on people because like like you said that that constant reward system for like super easy on people, they like that, but they'll also learn from that because they are getting dopamine if we're if we're gonna go down that realm by you just saying oh good job, and if it really wasn't a good job, you just basically inform them to work like shit. Yeah. Yeah, and if you if you constantly give them positive feedback, the positive feedback actually stops having any effect hmm. because they okay. Let's yourself, you're you you know you just did a shitty rep on snatch, and I tell you good job, much better extension. You know in your head it's shit. So now from now on, subconsciously, everything I tell you has zero credibility. Hmm. So as a coach, it, it just completely shuts down your capacity to give feedback. I'm actually usually pretty nice with my clients and foster really positive relationships. I believe in, you know, not sugarcoating things, establishing the credibility of when I give positive feedback and I try to reinforce that. But every once in a while, I see one of them doing something in the gym. They're not training with me. And I look over and I'll just go right over in front of them and I'll start just making this like waving across my neck, choke, like stop what you're doing. I caught one of my girls and she is really crazy strong. She's got one of the best physiques that anyone can walk around with. She looks like she's stage figure, natural figure lean all of the fucking time. Okay? And this is not a 20-year-old. What'd she do? What? What did she do in the gym now? Uh, so anyway, and she can do really strict pull-ups. I look over and she's doing this swaying hip to initiate her pull-ups. And I'm like, I'm having none of this crap. So I'm just, I shut her down mid-set. I'm like... No, what the fuck is this bullshit? You're better than this. <laughs> you can do these straight. <laughs> so that just put an end to that. And then I caught one of my guys half rep depth squatting his squats the other day. So I shut that bullshit down too. And he's a great guy. I think he was just having a bad day where his mind wasn't in it. And, and he, uh, he got he got ego lifting a little bit, I think. So I was like, oh, no, I'm not having this crap. You can do this deep. I know you're capable of it. And he was fine. So, But again, I always try to be really mean. I never try to embarrass someone. I've got a relationship with him where I can go... Uh-uh, I'm not letting you get away with this bullshit. And then they're usually pretty good about laughing about it. And that's the real art of coaching, right? Mm-hmm. Because you don't want to let anything slide, but you don't <clears throat> want to be the guy. I, mean, well, I joked around with the less bad compliment uh, yeah. because I, I do give a lot of feedback, but it's, it, it has to be objective, right? Mm-hmm. Because people will know the difference. But you can't be the, the drill sergeant like in the... Uh, like the full male jacket drill sergeant coach yeah. that just doesn't work either. No. Especially with today's generation. I was just saying, if you want to get the like politically correct and the left, it's like you can't be calling people maggots. <laughs> <laughs> Listen up, maggots. 
Probably. There was actually there, there was like if we want that, there's a lot of politically incorrect in that whole first twenty well, minutes. Like, I actually think about this like most of the movies that we grew up watching would never be oh, able man. they would never be. I made actually have that thought like, all the time. Ace Ventura. So <laughs> I think I mentioned this on air, and I actually should have something. We've got Tony Gentlecore scheduled for next week, and him and Dean Somerset in their presentation, they always use this. Finkel is Einhorn. Einhorn is Finkel <laughs> reference, right? So, and, I'm, and I, I see this and like, I guess I've been so, I am very anti-political correctness, but even I just kind of go, holy shit sometimes. And it's, it's, if anyone hasn't watched Ace Ventura, this is probably lost on you. If you have, you know where I'm going with this. But basically it, I am just waiting for someone in one of these things to freak the fuck out and go, that's anti-trans, that's transphobic. It's like, no, it's a movie reference and a, and a joke, but nowadays that doesn't go into a movie because no one would ever dare write that shit. <laughs> like, there's, I guess, uh, is anyone interested in the, the video game um, Cyberpunk, was it 2077 or something like that? It's the same company that made the Witcher series. And so That's an just, old RPG. Yeah, but it, now it's being made into a new game. It's an old RPG. So people are freaking out because there's a depiction of a a very large erection on a female character in the background of a, of a screenshot, advanced screenshot. So there's like melting down over shit like this. And it's like, holy crap, guys. If anything, it's like, that shit's out there. It's like more accepting of, you know, of, you know this, this, this sort of culture, which I, which I think is fine. I think that's actually really good. But I think sometimes with this stuff, people are just looking for reasons to get outraged. But... Well, I, I call that surrogate goals. Okay. Like people who have no real goal in life, like they have no real accomplishment, they have no real passion, they are looking for something to make them feel important, make themselves feel good about themselves. So, so they are creating those vendettas, these quests. I'm a white knight. I'm, uh, I'm going to defend the oppressed. And, and that's, I think, where it comes from. You want to put yourself at the center of a quest to palliate for your lack of direction in life and your lack of goal in life. You're never going to see someone who is a very successful person like, go on a rant against uh, people who are uh, being oppressed or things like that. I mean, all those who get uh, offended by everything, like nine out of ten live with their parents. <laughs> and that's an actual statistic. And I've seen something recently about that. Those who are in like those uh, big riots, nine out of ten live with their parents. And I mean, I, mean, I live with my parents until I was like, like thirty-eight. So that that's that's cool with me, right? <laughs> but uh, it just tells me that you probably have no direction in life and no goal. If you're like fine staying with your parents until you're thirty, then you probably lack something when it comes to the motivation. So you need to create those goals to make yourself feel good about yourself and then feeling part of the group, feeling accepted, loved by a group, want, even if it's a, I want a you to make that article. It doesn't have to be on Teen Nation. Just so I can, like, post it. Like, if I ever see this crap again, I'll just post the link to your article. Like, Actually, basically, the same, basically the same book you're writing. Dude, I wrote one on fat shaming. I yeah, did see I that. I read that. That would, I was actually like, on the same line. I said, I just stopped complaining about like uh, You can actually do something about like being fat. People who equate like fat shaming with racism, dude, you have a choice to be fat or not. I mean, yes, it requires effort, but you can change. If you're born black. You can well, change it. Actually, you can change your race now, right? Rachel, yeah, Rachel, Rachel Dolezal and uh, what's that guy? I'm going to get so much shit for this. The the head of Black Lives Matter, uh, Sean King, the white guy who's pretending to be a black guy. Someone will get mad that I said that. 
but uh, there's some issues with this guy. He's actually a bit of an ass. Anyway, I think the movement at its at its core, you know, like real racist shit, is actually a really good thing. But I just I find it a little abhorrent that people are pretending to be another race and then uh, a lot of virtue signaling on behalf of it. But I'm going to move off that because then I'm going okay. to catch so much crap. So okay, buddy. Well, uh, <laughs> I was so black at one point in my life that I was actually darker than most people in Cuba when I went there. Plus, well, you live I mean, in Canada, Cuba. You are Vin Diesel's uh, doppelganger and Vin's ethnicity. He's actually kind of secretive about it. I mean, he's, he's Puerto Rican. I don't know what he is. Nor who gives a shit. He's fucking awesome. That's yeah. what I love about the Fast and Furious series. Is instead of all this Hollywood leftist virtue signaling bullshit, they actually just cast a really awesome group just of people really from everywhere in the fucking world. It works, and it isn't about. It isn't about inclusivity. It's it's just actually an awesome thing, and they do it better than any of these movies that are like doing it on purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Cool, man. It was actually good to have you. It was good to sit down and talk. Every, I don't know. You've been on Teenage for 20 years. So I think there's a lot of people who've read you, and you, you know that. So it's just kind of cool to have you on. And just to hear you go off. And we try to make it fun and talk about stuff that we didn't even do our script half the time. But It was way better. So Yeah. Yeah, like I said, we really appreciate it. Guys, if some of our audience may not have come across you yet, go check out Christian. His stuff is great. Again, Tib Army, T-H-I-B Army. That's his handle on everything. And, brother, we are definitely going to bring you back. And we are going to work on sooner, if not, or later, if not sooner, having you come to Edmonton and present here in, in one of our events. So uh, we, we're going to do this one up next week. And we'll have a cool graphic for you. So if you want to stay online for just a couple seconds. Yep. That was Shut up and sit down. Shut up and sit down.